From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. And hello to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations, nearly 40 of them now across North America. Those of you who take the show with us on your mobile device with the Conspiracy Show app, free download. Those of you who watch us on the YouTube stream and If you haven't done so already and you are watching us on the YouTube stream, please hit the red sub button. And hello to all of you, of course, in the uh, the live stream chat who join us without fail each and every week. We appreciate your support. However and wherever you're listening, I bid the, the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. Now, just a reminder. If you haven't already subscribed to my new podcasts, I, I hope you'll consider doing so. Conspiracy Unlimited drops three times a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You don't have to listen or wait, rather. You don't have to wait for the Sunday show. You can listen to Conspiracy Unlimited three days a week, and you can listen and subscribe. Just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and then my other podcast The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone which is part of the Chris Jericho Network and Westwood One and that drops every Wednesday at midnight so if you like rock and roll and uh, dark mysteries I think you'll enjoy it The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone and you can subscribe just Google it that's the best way it's everywhere just Google The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone and you'll find it all right We are going to talk about enlightenment for the next hour. And as I mentioned earlier, the world is certainly in short supply. Uh, My guest is an author who's written on uh, finding your true self through connection with one divine awareness. And uh, he's been with me before uh, many years ago on the radio. We were actually talking about spirit communication and the the famous Harry Houdini seances. Thomas Rosetto uh, taught a class for the Center for Lifelong Learning, which is part of Santa Barbara City College. um, And it was the highest ranked community college in the United States back in 2013. And this class had the same title as his book, Living the Paradox of Enlightenment. He's spoken publicly numerous times both in person and on the radio. And in September 2012, he spoke for the prestigious lecture series Mind and Supermind, which again was run by the Santa Barbara City College. Again, the book is Living the Paradox of Enlightenment, Spiritual Awakening in Simple, Clear English. Thomas Rosetto, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? It's been a long time. Uh, Hello, Richard. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the nice intro. I'm doing well. Thanks. So, the paradox uh, of enlightenment. Let's talk about the word paradox. What is the paradox of enlightenment? Um, There are numerous paradoxes as you go along this path, but probably the deepest paradox is, initially, you think of yourself as a person who's progressing spiritually, going down some kind of path in search of enlightenment, and you hope that one day this person will become enlightened. And this is true. The person does become enlightened. But when the wake-up process happens, and there's a little bit more to enlightenment than just waking up, but when the wake-up process happens, you wake up to the fact that you do not exist fundamentally as the person. The person does exist, and you exist as a person, but it is not your fundamental existence. 
So um, your fundamental existence is, as your introduction touched on, this pure awareness. You, in your book, you liken this to sort of the difference between the actor and the the character on the stage or on the right. on the screen that the actor right. is portraying. Just sort of drill down a little bit on that to to complete the analogy. Yeah, I use that metaphor numerous times in the book. Each time I bring it out a little bit more. But the first thing to notice is that the actor is the source of the character. Certainly not the other way around. The character is not the source of the actor. So there's a sense of the transcendent source and the dependent construction. The character, of course, being a dependent construction. So the wisdom invites us to make a distinction between the actor and the character because of this. And yet, when the actor steps forward as the character, they truly are one. If you're standing in front of the character and you want to find the actor, you don't need to dig into a deeper and deeper layer. You can just see right there, when you look into the eyes of the character, you're looking right into the eyes of the actor. So, with this metaphor of who you are as the real person and who you are as this seeming person, this, um, I'm sorry, I said the real person, I should say the real self. You are fundamentally this pure awareness. This is the actor. And it arises as this person. It actually arises as the totality of all of created reality. But it, for our purposes right now, in this uh, point in the discussion, we'll just uh, think of it as arising as this person, such as the person Thomas or the person Richard. So there are different persons, and these persons are unique, they're different, but there's only one awareness that is arising as all of this. We can go into that more as we go on. Sure. So this pure awareness, which is looking through my eyes and looking through your eyes, is it the same awareness for all of us? So there's only one actor, but many characters. You're a character, I'm a character. Is that how it works? Well, yes, yes. And we would like to point out right now that it's the character that it is, seems like this is who you are fundamentally. It seems like I am Thomas, that I'm Thomas, and when Thomas is gone, that's the end of Thomas. And it seems like that. But the waking up process reveals that I am this pure awareness that is arising as this person, Thomas. And this person, Thomas, can be seen to be either... Some people look at it in a purely materialistic way, the body, and other people will introduce the idea of a soul. And the soul, of course, is working with or associating with the body. And together, the body and soul, I might call that the person. And so there is a person, and the person is unique and dynamic, and that is what I call a functional identity, because that's how we go through the world. And we don't want to lose our practicality um, we don't want to all of a sudden say, well, I'm none of this. I'm just going to sit here like a bump on the log or something. You know, you stay active in the world, and this is your functional identity, Richard and Thomas and so forth. So this pure awareness, then, is that God? Is that your yes. is that your concept of the divine, this pure right. awareness? Um, yes, and this isn't something that you just step into right away, but as you think about who you are, there's this process of a disidentification. It's a classic uh, way of expressing this, where you might say, I'm not my body, I'm not my soul. 
And I like to add the word fundamentally. You are not fundamentally your body. You're not fundamentally your soul. And you start to recognize that you are this awareness. And you might think of it as your awareness or this awareness. And then you wake up to a second awakening where you go, oh, the awareness that's looking out of my eyes is the awareness that's looking out of your eyes and his eyes and her eyes and everyone's eyes. And then there comes one more awakening where you realize that this awareness is actually arising as the totality of created reality. At that point, you realize that this awareness has two capacities, the capacity to perceive and the capacity to create what it perceives. And this is why we refer to it as the divine awareness or source awareness. So this idea of creating what we perceive, creating our own reality... That sounds suspiciously like the book The Secret, which was popularized, obviously, by Oprah Winfrey. It sounds sort of very right. new agey. I mean, you don't go along with that entirely. So explain where sort of you get off that train. Well, I don't think that that focus that that book offered is very helpful. It's very focused on outer conditions. People will think about, I want to be, do, and have well, as the saying goes, be, do, and have whatever you want. And it's very focused on outer conditions. And I think that the true process of creation is much better served if you think about an emotional state of being, about being at peace, and being available for love to flow through you. This would be God's love flowing through you. Being at peace and also being joyful. Um, and so if you focus on these inner states, and the Buddhists talk about this, these are called the four virtues. Um, they use this as more of a focus of mm, nurturing your existence rather than cultivating an outer world where if I get this, I will then be happy. I mean, this caters to the world's simplest philosophy. I will be happy when I get what I want. And this is not... Um, a fruitful way to go, in my opinion. So I think there's a difference between the outer focus on outer conditions and focusing on these inner states of being. And yet this inner state of being actually arises primarily, uh, fundamentally through your beliefs, the beliefs of the person, or you might say the beliefs of the soul, these core beliefs. And you may hold the belief that I don't fit into the world, and so a creation will come around and you may not, you don't have the ability to order things from a catalog, but there's still an arising of conditions in the world around you that reflect these core beliefs. That might not be that All right, clear, Thomas. But, yeah. No, it's 100% you're clear. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with essayist, author, truth seeker, soul warrior, Thomas Rosetto. Living the Paradox of Enlightenment, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Thomas Rosetto is with us. His website is infinitelymystical.com, and you can read all of his essays right there, infinitelymystical.com. Dot com And his new book is entitled, or just titled, I should say. I always get uh, uh, emails when I say entitled. It's titled, Living the Paradox of Enlightenment. We should uh, offer up a couple of definitions. What do you mean, first of all, by enlightenment? 
You know, that's an interesting subject, and a lot of people shy away from that, but I have a fairly simple definition. I learned this from my mentor, Timothy Conway, and the second part is what I'll give you first, because it's a little bit easier to understand. It's basically being a good person. To state it a little more formally, being completely free from all selfish or self-centered desires and tendencies. So you're not in this to, for me, 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 give me that, you know. It's, or selfishness and self I make a distinction between those. Selfishness is when you actually, like, cut in front of somebody to take their parking place away from them. There's someone who's, who you're interfering with. Whereas self-centeredness, you're going, hey, everybody else, you're on your own, that's fine, but I'm going to go over here and just have a good time, you know. But I don't really care about anybody else. There's no compassion or empathy or anything like that. So being a good person, being completely free from all selfish or self-centered desires and tendencies. And that takes lifetimes to actually unfold. That's a polishing up. And, of course, it's God who's doing this polishing of this person. Now, the first one has to do with waking up to what we were talking about, your true identity. So I state that as being completely awake to the intuitive understanding of your true identity as pure awareness. You see this pure awareness as the one self that arises as all selves. And that's the definition I use. So it's waking up to the the idea that there is no me, you, which is what we call dualism, right? So this is a non-duality approach. So explain the concept of non-duality, because there's some confusion, I think, with that. Oh, yes, definitely. It's actually kind of, and I know this makes it sound flippant, but it actually is both, because I, fundamentally there is this one awareness, which is completely undivided and doesn't branch out and doesn't break into pieces, and yet it arises as you and me, and we're unique, we're different. So there's both, so we honor both. The non-dual this word is used, and hardly anyone, in my opinion, uses it this way. But what it's pointing to, that God and creation are one reality, not two. This is the not two that that word is pointing to. Some people mistakenly think, in my opinion, that what they're pushing is the idea that there is no dualistic expressions, that somehow hot and cold are uh, not valid or, you know, there's something that, that makes them the same or something like that. But we honor all dualistic expressions for what they are in the world as they're expressed. And it's perfectly fine to have preferences and work for things according to your preferences. Like we do work for the good. We don't work for evil. We don't say somebody... Oh, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm making war. Oh, hey, let me help you with that. You know, it's no, we try to help for peace. So I'm not sure, you know, I, I come from a Christian background, a Christian faith, Orthodox Christian. Right. Is there anything in this? I guess I don't know my Bible very well. Otherwise, I wouldn't be I wouldn't have to ask the question. But is there anything in your philosophy that in your mind, runs contrary to Christian, uh, the Christian faith? I, you know, that's a difficult question because Christianity is different things to different people. Um, so I would say that there are some people that are mm, labeled Christian mystics, 
And they see that, um, like when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, they take that in a broader sense. It isn't just Jesus and God that are one. It's all of creation. And so it's um, there is some compatibility there, in my opinion, but most definitely is this idea of working for the good and and also asking for God to work through you to work for the good. Right, right. Right. The understanding, again, from a Christian perspective, is that 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 man, as in mankind, we're fallen. We're we're fundamentally not good, uh, and that only through grace can you achieve this. I guess what you would call uh, enlightenment only through God's grace. You can't do it through good right. works. Right. Would you right. agree I with that? I would agree with that, and I would say that we would probably not say that. Uh, say. To name a person, or we could talk about humanity in its entirety. We wouldn't necessarily say that it's fallen, but we would say that it is ah, completely powerless. I mean, it's just—it's basically—it um, doesn't have any substance of its own. Its substance, like the actor and the character. When you talk about just the character, the character is nothing without the actor. The actor is what brings the substance to the character. Every quality right. or aspect that's put on the stage is put there by the actor. So this is the bold thing to say, because this means that God is arising as everyone, and God is doing everything. And so that makes people uncomfortable when they get to this idea that maybe God is doing even what we call evil. And that is a question I really can't answer, and I think it's important for me to point out that I can't answer all these questions. Sure. Who who can? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I don't want to sound flippant or trying to escape. I try to put some good guidance on the table, and I think that it's important to look for good things and what happens to you in your life, and also to try and work for the good. If you are um, pursuing some type of understanding and it it uh, is not inspiring you to be a good person, or it's trying to encourage you to say, "Oh, none of this matters." You know, I would invite you to look at that a little more deeply because you should be practical and you should be working for something that is wholesome and beneficial for people. Right, right. Now, the idea of creating your own reality or you sort of refine that is working on your inner self and that you can create that. That happens through what? Affirmations, meditation. You use the example of someone who doesn't feel that they are worthy of love or that they fit right. in, they belong. So how do right. you create that reality in practical terms? I think one of the first things to do is take a look at the thoughts that are going through your mind because they will reflect your deeper core beliefs. And you can also look at the circumstances that are around you. I ran into these ideas a long time ago. I think it was about 1980. And at that time, I was reading the Seth books. And Seth was saying... You create your own reality. And I ran into some people who were also saying you can be, do, and have whatever you want. And I incorrectly said, ah, these are the same things. And then later those phrases of be, do, and have whatever you want found its way into the secret many years later. But when I worked with it way back in 1980, I was not successful as defined by outer conditions. And I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, ah, gee, I don't know. Maybe I'm not doing it right. Maybe it doesn't work. Um, I'm missing something, whatever. And I just said, well, I'll just go do my thing as best I can. But for whatever reason, I was inspired in 2012 to reread some of the Seth books. And I reread uh, The Nature of Personal Reality. 
And in there, I, I started to see, you know, he's not saying that you can be, do, and have whatever you want. He's saying that you can pick these open-ended beliefs and hold them inside and look for what arises. It's not like ordering things from a menu. But what arises will reflect these core beliefs. And so I looked around at the very, I'll use this word, very small life that I had. And I said, well, I don't believe that I fit in. And I haven't believed this for decades. So maybe I ought to open that up and say, I do fit in. I don't know what this will bring, but I do fit in. And I did use affirmations. So I used 10 minutes a day, and I still do these, and I change them around a little bit. 10 minutes a day, 5 minutes a day. In fact, Seth says if you use these affirmations for more than 10 minutes, you're simply telling yourself that you have very big problems that are going to be very difficult to fix. So he says you should give that idea up and just work with 5 or 10 minutes a day. And um, you should check back and see how the outer conditions are reflecting, but you don't use those as the guide. You use your experience. And if you're doing this, so that you can set up outer conditions so that you go, oh, now they're the way I want, now I will be happy. You're putting it in the wrong order. You need to learn how to examine your beliefs so that you can be happy now, at least to some extent. So this is why I recommended the book Pollyanna, which was written more than 100 years ago, and she guides people into looking at the things in your life, finding something, and she called it the glad game, and it became very popular and and uh, so I have an essay about that. Um, anyway, so I, that's how what does, I worked with mostly. Yeah, go ahead. Right. So if you're, I mean, we all know that changing a behavior is the most difficult thing there is to do. And you just ask yeah. someone who, who smoked for 20 years and, and has, is trying to quit how difficult it is to change behavior. So some might be saying, well, simply by doing these daily affirmations, how is that going to, how is that going to change my behavior? Let's say, for example, uh, a, uh, a person is angry all the time. Yeah. And that, it defines who they are. They just, they're constantly lashing exactly, out. Exactly. Uh, they're an angry person. How are you going to change that reality? By, 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 by simple daily affirmations. Well, I'm glad you brought up because the three components of this creative process are the core beliefs, the emotions, and the actions. They all come from the belief. If the belief is such that the world is against me at every turn, you know, this will lead to emotional frustration and that'll fester into this anger and therefore you'll have this lashing out. So if this person is willing to look, oh, maybe I can let go of this anger, and maybe they can step in and have some little practices, maybe they will be drawn to a particular procedure that I'm not even aware of. You know, I mean, there may be people that uh, specialize in anger that have procedures that do work as long as people bring an attitude of, I'm going to give this an honest, genuine try. Um, perhaps that will guide them into an environment where they feel like they're respected for who they are right then and there, and yet these people are also willing to work with them and help them and care about them in a way that will help them bring them to a new place where they can find a little more joy inside them that they can share with others. You say the key then is to you have to identify what your core beliefs are if you're going to be able mm -hmm. to change your inner reality. But that requires, in some cases, a great deal of self-awareness, which 
many people perhaps do not have. How, you know, how do you identify your core belief? For example, how do you identify why you're angry? Maybe you don't really understand why you're angry. How do you do that? Yeah, yeah. It might be a little easier for me to deal with this on a case-by-case basis, but I'm not a counselor of any kind, so I want to point that out, too. Right. Uh, in a general sense, there needs to be some kind of idea in this person's mind that, yes, this situation can be improved. Just that is enough to say, okay, for me to uh, improve this situation, I'm going to have to start looking at causes. Why am I angry? What is it? And what Seth put on the table was that your core beliefs are in the conscious mind, but they become mm, habitual. He, re- he likens it to furniture in a room, and the furniture is there, and if you pay attention to it, it'll, you'll see it. But normally you're not paying attention to that, those beliefs. You're paying attention to the outer conditions that are arising from it. So he wants to point out that you don't need to go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist and hypnosis or any of that, although that may be helpful for people that have smoking or anger issues or like you say. For me, what I did was I said, hey, look, I mean, I've got enough time that's passed. I don't have any mm, serious problems and I'm a reasonably happy person, but I don't think I'm engaging in my life as fully as I could. So I think I'm going to look at both the outer conditions, the thoughts that are going through my head, like, oh, I can't do that because... And then I look at why, why do I say I can't do that? Because, because I don't fit in. It's like, well, I don't have to believe I don't fit in. I'll just start opening up to the idea that I fit in. Um, and so things changed and, um, things changed quickly in some ways for my life and things took longer in other ways. It's interesting though, you know, the idea of trying to fit in because one could argue that traveling yeah. the spiritual path is yeah. basically making a conscious decision not to fit in. Because when right. we look at the world around us, yeah, clearly, you know, most of the world is not on the spiritual path. So going on the spiritual path is arduous, it's difficult, it doesn't make life easier necessarily. Exactly. In many in many ways it makes life more difficult. Yeah. Can we pick up that when we get back? Absolutely. You're like a seasoned radio vet. You heard the music coming up and you knew we had to go to a break. Well done, Thomas. We'll come back. Thomas Rosetto, Living the Paradox of Enlightenment, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. It is time to redefine reality. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Thomas Rosetto is here. And uh, the book is... Living the Paradox of Enlightenment. Before the break, Thomas, we were talking about how living the spiritual life often means coming to terms with the fact that you're not going to fit in. And yet that was something that obviously you wanted to try and for yourself to figure out. How can I fit in? Maybe the answer is you don't. Maybe you, you don't need to look to try and fit in. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And I would say that you certainly don't want to mimic or go along with evildoers and things like that. You need to express yourself in your own way. But, well, I shouldn't say you, I should say me. I mean, this was uh, about me seeing that I can step forward into the world and start speaking up without concern of who's going to like me and who's not going to like me. And that's how I'm going to fit in. It may be a small compared to the number of people that bought the book, The Secret, (laughs) but at least I will be 
stepping forward in a way that I didn't before when I was staying in a very, very small place in my life. So, yes, you want to check your own integrity, your own, mm, you know, there's that resonance within you when you know that you are doing the right thing, the appropriate thing, what you're meant to do in life. And if you're not on that path, then you know that there's a little lacking. I don't know if I explained that very well, but how do you feel about some of the work that you do? I mean, don't you feel that it has a a purpose that's greater than who you are, but you're still doing your part? That's true. As a Christian, we are in the world, but we're not of the world. That's right. kind of the way we try to look at it. So yeah, I think I, I you and I are talking too. the same language. Yeah, I yeah. use that phrase too, because we are in the world right now. Even if someone were to say, in some definitive way, that the world is a dream or something like that, it's like, well, a dream is real as a dream. We shouldn't downplay a dream just because someone says it's a dream. It's valid right. because it's here. It's experience. There's pain and suffering, and there's also pleasure, and there's a helping hand, and there are people that are um, not so helping. And so in that framework, even if it is a dream, usually people say it's a dream because it's fleeting. The world doesn't seem to have any lasting permanence to it. So that's one reason why they say it's a dream. But we still honor it. We don't invalidate it. And so we want to, I want to step forward in a way that I can participate in a way that's a little larger than what I've done in the past. So I've been using that affirmation about fitting into the world in a beautiful way or something like that or a loving way. Right. So that's what I've been using. To go back to your analogy of the actor versus the character, if you look at this life as a play rather than a dream, you know, we were given a role to play and we were given a script and we have to finish the play and we have to, you know, give our best performance. You mentioned because you were sort of inspired by the Seth books, we should spend just a couple of minutes. Talk to me about this Seth character who was being channeled by this psychic, I guess back in the 1960s, Jane Roberts. 1964, I think. How did Jane Roberts connect with Seth, and who is he or was he? That's a good question, and I wanted to just touch on that one thing you said about a script. The script is not fixed. The script is dynamically unfolding in this play. So it's not like there's fate that's got its hand over everything. You see what I'm saying? True, yes. We have a role to play, but we can improvise. Exactly, right. So... Jane Roberts and her husband never had any experience with this kind of spiritual work or whatever, and for some reason they decided to fool around with a Ouija board, and it started to send some messages to them. And shortly thereafter that, she was able to speak using her voice, and they didn't have to use the Ouija board. And Seth was very different in his personality and mannerisms and vocal tone and all of this. And he ended up dictating books from cover to cover. And I'm not sure how many books. I would have guessed around six or seven. People have made new ones since Jane Roberts passed away in 84, where they go through some of the old material and old recording. They had a lot of audio recordings and made more books. But as far as the books that Seth actually dictated, he spent some time. And uh, one of them is Seth Speaks. And then the next one, I think, was The Nature of Personal Reality. And a little later, he had one call, it had the phrase, mass events, because it was more about groups, something about the nature of personal reality and mass events. And so he's talking about things, bigger questions like war and stuff like that. So 
it's quite a lot of material. And I did have trouble reading these books. I had to read them very slowly. Other people tell me, oh, they read them very fast. I don't know how helpful that was for them, but for me, I had to read them slowly. And what led you to believe that Jane Roberts and her husband were actually in communication with this entity known as Seth, and they weren't just making the whole thing up? I don't know. When I picked up the first book, I was in a bookstore. I just kind of flipped the book into the middle. I started reading. It seemed like it was a compassionate person, very wise, um, very insightful, good sense of humor, and I thought I'd give it a try. So I started reading them. Later, like I said, it wasn't long before I, uh, maybe a year or two or so, where I said, you know, I just am not judging from my outer conditions. I don't see a whole lot happening here, so I just kind of put them aside for a long time. And when I came back to them all those years later, I said, okay, now I can look at my core beliefs and I can see the circumstances in my life and how they reflect those core beliefs. And so I'm going to give it another try. And instead of working on affirmations that are oriented towards outer conditions, I'm going to work on open-ended affirmations. Thomas will take a time out, come back and continue to discuss enlightenment right here on The Conspiracy Show. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thomas Rosetto stays with us, the author of Living the Paradox of Enlightenment. And again, the website is infinitelymystical.com, where you can read a collection of his essays. Infinitelymystical.com. I want to talk a little bit about Tookie Williams, Stanley Tookie Williams, who was... A, a pretty hardened member of the, was it the Bloods or the Crips? He was the a Crips. gang member. The Crips. Yeah. Talk to me about Tookie Williams and why his, he was sentenced to death. Uh, he was, he was put to death by lethal injection. Yeah. Why that, that affected you so much? You know, this happened in December of 2005 and I had been attending weekly meetings with my spiritual mentor for about, oh gosh, I don't know, four or five months at that point, maybe six. And um, he had been talking about how this awareness was so fundamental and arises as everything. And so, as an aside, seemingly a separate topic, I happened to listen to the radio and someone was talking about this, this man who started, he was a founding member of the Crips, as a very young boy, I think it was like 13 or 14, and it started out as a neighborhood protection kind of thing. But as they're running around the neighborhood late at night, they started rubbing elbows with drugs and other people and getting involved in all that and then turning into, you know, it was a pretty heavy gig. I mean, we're talking murder, all kinds of stuff. And many years later, he's arrested for murder. He thinks he's framed for this particular murder and proclaims his innocence for this one. But in the meantime, when he was in prison... He started to write books, children's books, short children's books, 25 pages. And uh, they were basically um, telling children and young adults, teenagers, about the false promise of gang life. And he was getting flooded with letters from people, you know, telling him that he was the only reason they were staying out of gangs. And he was doing all this good work while in prison, writing these books. And I heard him speak because they were talking about um, his upcoming execution, and there was some people trying to stop this. And it was, 
it seemed like, well, one, the man is harmless now. Why, what's the benefit for killing him? He's not doing anything harming society in any way, but I guess it's, you know, to make an example and deterrent and that kind of thing, you know. And I did not expect to be impacted so strongly emotionally. But I heard him speak for just a couple of minutes on the radio a couple of times. Um, I don't remember them being long interviews. Um, but he seemed like he was getting the work done. He was a voice for peace. And um, he was keeping people out of gangs. I thought that was really significant. And, and I just couldn't imagine that he would be put to death. And so I had gone to sleep, and I had woken up at around 1 o'clock in the morning, and they usually do these, these executions around midnight. And so I knew that if I pushed the button on my clock radio, the lead story would be whether or not they went through with this. And I went ahead and I pushed that button, and, um, you know, I heard an uh, unemotional voice of a man just announcing that he was gone, no longer there for his family or his friends. And I still get emotional about it now because I had been writing for like five or six years at that point and no one was really paying much attention to my writing and here was Tookie. You know, he was getting the job done beautifully and yet here he is put down and I'm thinking all these people that work for peace like John Kennedy and, you know, Tookie and it's just like seemed like the forces for darkness seemed to just be getting stronger and stronger and I, I just broke down and cried and cried so hard I couldn't believe that someone could cry that hard and while I was crying I kind of stepped back from that and witnessed myself crying and I said I wonder what this sadness really is and I I pulled in that sadness I pulled it closer and I pulled it right into me I pulled it into my awareness and it just dissolved and it dissolved quickly and with that I went oh this emotion is arising out of my awareness because that's how it works. It arises out of this awareness and it dissolves back into it. That's where all my experiences come. They all, it's just an intuitive awakening. And so that was, um, quite profound for me and, um, it really floored me. And I have an essay about that up on my website so, um, people can read that too. Infinitely mystical. Dot com. I wanted to ask you about the gentleman who wrote the foreword to your book. You refer to him as your spiritual mentor, Timothy Conway. And this is not the Tim Conway from the Carol Burnett show, folks. Uh, <laughs> Although there is a tie-in, which is really funny. Between okay, both well, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot to learn from a comedian like Tim Conway. But who is the Timothy Conway in your life? You know, he's about my age. And he grew up in the L.A. area. His father was an agent for actors, and one of his actors was Timothy Conway. Ah, there you <laughs> go. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, Timothy, when he was only 16, had some kind of experience. It's not a full and complete awakening, um, but he had a quite profound experience that he was like, everything is God. This is all God. And he's very scholarly. And he embarked on, from that point forward, on an adventure into studying Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, Sufism, all these non-dual traditions, Christian mystics, um, indigenous people, uh, Native Americans, as they sometimes are called, and so forth. And he has uh, accumulated quite a bit of knowledge, but it's just... It's not just knowledge. He is such an open heart, and he's very, very 
aware and he has a scholarly mind that's much beyond mine. I'll put it that way. He can deal with these foreign languages. Of, you know, the Buddhists often use Sanskrit and Pali and other languages, and I am just not very good at that, which is why my book has the subtitle, you know, Spiritual Awakening in Plain English, you know. But anyway, he even went to India and met some of these teachers, and he was just having these weekly meetings in Santa Barbara for about, oh gosh, it was more than 20 years. And I showed up about in the middle of all of that. I had heard of him, but anyway, one time I ran into someone who was going to one of the meetings, and she said, oh, you know, it's right now, it's right up the street, it's completely free. And I said, you know what, I can do that. So I went up and, and you know, the first time you hear these, these these teachings, it's like, oh man, I don't even know if I understand what they're saying. But I said, you know, he's not putting himself in the middle of the spotlight. He's not making a big deal of it all. He's just putting it, I'm going to come back next week. And I just came back next week, and then I said, you know, I'm going to come back again. And I just kept coming back. And so, um, yeah, he and I got pretty close, uh, although we both, most of the time, all we spent together was in these meetings, two hours Tuesday nights in Santa Barbara. And then in, uh, I think it was around 2016, he moved to Phoenix with his wife. And so I haven't seen him very much. We talk a little bit on the phone, Skype a little bit. But um, he's got a huge website, um, enlightened-spirituality.org. And that's Timothy Conway. And and he talks about, and you mentioned his heart-mind explosion at the age of 16 without the aid of drugs, as he points out. Yeah. Uh, but how does that happen for some people that oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, they just they, they, they catch a, a glimpse of it, of this oneness, and they're able to hold on to it, where most people may, sometimes with the aid of drugs, uh, catch a fleeting glimpse of it, but then they lose it forever. Yeah. How does it stick? And they end up chasing it as if they're incomplete and they need to get what they used to have. And Timothy often says, I'd like to remind you, you already are this pure awareness, whole and complete. The person is going to be going through all kinds of changes. But who you truly are fundamentally, the actor rather than the character, who you are fundamentally is already whole and complete. So no need to chase. In fact, um, the phrase I like to use is a, um, what's the, a sincere curiosity. It's not driven. It's not urgent. It doesn't have, oh, i got to figure it out. Oh, i got to become enlightened. I have people get in touch with me. How do I do this really fast? <laughs> and I'm like, first, drop the idea that you're going to do it really fast. <laughs> it's going to go at whatever speed it is. And, you know, honestly, I believe in past lives. So I think that people have had past lives that prepare them for this unfolding so they get a little bit of a head start on it. Is a belief in past lives an essential component of enlightenment, do you believe? I don't because think I don't, it is. I don't believe in reinc- I don't believe in reincarnation. That's my faith. Um, yeah, I, I don't believe so. that it's required. I mean, um, one of the one of the things as far as the the teaching of you create your own reality points to just try to be positive. And just try and be positive. So right now, right here, with what you have, how will that improve from where you might have been thinking, 
everything always goes bad for me. Everything always goes wrong, you know, switch it around. So there's that. And then as far as the other part about being this pure awareness fundamentally, you can ponder that without um, entertaining the idea of reincarnation. There are people that have done research um, in reincarnation, and I think it's the University of Virginia, is that right? Um, Ian Stevens or Ian? Yes, yes, the reincarnation children uh, who had um, incredible memories of of past lives. I must admit that 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 stuff is compelling, uh, particularly the case of that young boy out in Seattle uh, who believed he was a fighter pilot in the Second World War and knew all of these intricate details, even the pilot's name, and, and, and uh, yeah, it was, it's quite remarkable. I don't know what to say about that. Yeah, yeah, and so I read those books, and it's like, hmm, that's really interesting, and what's really great in a lot of ways is you don't have to believe one way or the other for it. And so um, same with um, when they talk about out-of-body experiences. You know, it's like maybe, um, but when you do it yourself, then it's a whole different deal. You know, then you can speak from experience. And have you had one? No, not me. Um, I, I'm entertaining the idea of giving that a bit more of a go. So, but right now I haven't done that. And so, yes, um, Ian Stevenson retired in 2002, and Jim Tucker took the work over at the That's University it. of Virginia. And over at the U- University of Arizona, you have Dr. Gary Swartz with the afterlife experiments and work with mediums and things like that. And then other people, like I said, are... Uh, doing workshops with out-of-body experiences. These are all things that help you move to the uh, understanding that you are not a body, and you're moving more to the idea that you are a soul. And all I'm pointing out is there's even one more step, that you are this pure awareness that gives rise to the soul and rise to the body, and then together it all goes. InfinitelyMystical.com and the books Living the Paradox of Enlightenment. How can we get a copy of the book? Amazon.com. You can get an ebook or you can get a paperback. They're pretty inexpensive. You can check out my website, and I intentionally wrote all those essays so that they're standalone. You can read them in any order. I try to get to the core of the book in these essays. I do not try to hide the core of the book so that you are compelled to buy the book. That's really silly. If you like the essays, you'll probably like the book. Thomas, a great pleasure speaking with you again. Thank you so much for this. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on the show, Richard. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks again. Thomas Rosetto, infinitelymystical.com. My thanks to Ian and Ryan and Albert back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. <laughs>